the sudden closure of Long Island, they have uh, found another facility uh, that's uh, on, uh, in the south end. It's not too far from here, and that, they hope to have that open uh, within the next six weeks. There'll be about 450 beds, and then the detox programs will be over in Mattapan. But you'll be hearing more about that so our volunteer opportunities uh, can begin again that were happening so vitally on uh, Long Island. Then I was handed announcements. I... Uh, uh, this Saturday night here, tomorrow night, 7 p.m., Jump Drama is doing a ministry night. Time to worship together with Jump Drama and Dance Ministry. And uh, there, there may, we have a lot of visitors here that are thinking about coming to school. So if there was an event on campus like Zombie versus Humans, um, I'd be hesitant to announce that because we have these guests here today. And I wouldn't want them to think that there's a game going on campus because I'm the closed-minded conservative old chaplain. Uh, that there's a game on campus all week next week called Zombies versus Humans. Humans. But if there was a game called that, uh, I have been told to inform the student body that you can sign up for that uh, this weekend. So I can't believe I just uh, made a zombies announcement here in chapel this morning, uh, but I did. So, yes, I'm sure you're all drawn closer to God by that announcement. So thank you for the, the applause. Well, let me introduce our chapel speaker, and then our worship team is going to come and lead us. Uh, one of the great pastors we have here in the Boston area, of course, we love and encourage, and all the pastors are great, but one of the real uh, important leaders is Reverend Dr. Roberto Miranda, who is our speaker today. Dr. Miranda graduated from Princeton University with a BA in International Affairs, and upon his graduation was awarded the Harold Willis Dodd Achievement Prize. He continued at Harvard University, where he earned an MA and a PhD in Romance Languages and Latin American Literature. While studying at Harvard, Dr. Miranda was employed as a teaching fellow in the Spanish department and upon his graduation was awarded the Modern Languages Travel Prize for the best teacher among teaching fellows in the Modern Languages department. Following his graduation, Dr. Miranda entered the ministry and currently serves as the senior pastor at Lion of Judah Congregation in Boston, Massachusetts. In addition to leading his congregation, he has also served on various boards and in 2001 founded the Fellowship of Hispanic Pastors of New England, where he has served as president in the past. Dr. Miranda and his wife, Mercedes, have two daughters. He has one grandchild and another one on the way. And after I showed him his bio, he said, make sure you share the most important thing, and those are my grandchildren. So he has one, one grand, grandchild and another on the way. So uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing from him. Will you please stand as we open our time of worship together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing and, it, and honor it is to gather in your name to worship you. Uh, and we recognize that every aspect of life is worship as we depart this chapel and go back into the classroom or uh, spend time with friends this weekend or eating in the cafeteria. May we recognize that that too is an act of worship. But we gather together now corporately as a community to glorify you through song, through prayer, through hearing from your word. Pray your blessing upon this team. Thank you for Dr. Maranda and his ministry. Pray your blessing upon him. And may everyone in this sanctuary draw closer to you today, whatever that may look like, because I know we're in different places and different backgrounds and different experiences, but may we all draw closer to you. We pray these things now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Sorry. Wonderful. It's my second time here, and I'm absolutely blessed and uh, honored to share with you. And I understand you have parents here visiting today also, so I'll be especially careful in what I say. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'd like to just enter into... um, my remarks, uh, conscious of the time that we have, uh, um, that, that is very limited. Let me just tell you a little bit about the journey that leads to this uh, particular passage and this particular uh, theme that I want to discuss with you. Many times, you know, as a pastor, I, I find myself uh, beginning a new series of sermons or simply 
being in a situation such as this one where I need to find the specific word that God wants me to bear. Uh, and often you don't know a community that you're speaking to, you don't know their needs, um, and uh, you want to be timely and uh, prophetic and, and direct. So in those moments particularly, I, I really come before the Lord in a very deliberate way, and I ask the Holy Spirit to lead me to a specific uh, theme or a passage, and I rely on you know, God revealing it to me. This is not to be prescriptive here and to uh, sort of uh, tell you that this is the way you need to do things, but as, as far as I'm concerned, when I ask the Lord for guidance, specifically as a pastor and as a preacher, I will simply ask and then wait to receive an answer. And so, like I've done so many times, and often it's a dangerous thing because sometimes God gives you themes and passages that are so difficult to discover what it is in, in it that God wants you to to speak about that, I mean, you really have to exercise faith and, and uh, wait on the illumination of the Spirit, even for the Word that God is giving you. Uh, but this time, when I asked the Holy Spirit to give me a word for you this morning, immediately a, a uh, passage came to my mind. It was like a bolt of lightning almost, very subtle. It was just a mental, I can't say that there's a voice from heaven or anything audible, but it was just a, you know, a passage just erupted in my brain and it was a very obscure passage. And as a matter of fact, if you are familiar with it and you've seen it or you are familiar with the themes, or the details of that passage, then you must be a very good Bible student because it's an obscure passage, even for me as a pastor. And it's found in Jeremiah chapter 35. And um, it speaks of a family uh, called the Rechabites. Anybody heard of them? I mean, wow. Then. It really is obscure, more than, or either that you're not raising your hand just because you're not raising it and being obstinate. But, um, you know, the, the, this passage, the Rechabites, it's a family that uh, the Lord uh, asks uh, the prophet Jeremiah to go and uh, see them and call them into the temple. And, uh, by the way, the, the, the theme of my meditation is uh, obedience. And that's why, you know, I was kind of saying, Lord, couldn't you give me something a little more popular, a little lighter? that these people will like me at the end of the, my, my meditation, instead of telling me to tell them to eat their spinach, so to speak. Um, but it's about obedience, <clears throat> and I think we can all, always uh, bear another meditation, especially as I hope that this will be laden with grace as well and hope and encouragement. Um, but anyway, so God says, Jeremiah, call the, this family over to the temple and uh, set before them wine. And, and by the inclination of the passage, we're, we're given to understand that there was a lot of wine, and there must have been very good wine. And uh, this request that Jeremiah is to place before them is in the context of a man who has the authority of God, a prophet, a great prophet known to the nation, in the context of a sacred space, which is the temple. So God, uh, God tells Jeremiah, you know, offer them wine and tell them to drink. And so when, they, um, when Jeremiah says, you know, drink this wine... They say, uh, sorry, we can't do that because our forefather, Jonadab, is his name, uh, told his son that, uh, and asked him specifically that he and his descendants would uh, always abstain from drinking wine. So he made him promise as a sign of obedience that his descendants, his offspring, would not drink wine, ever. And not only that, that they would also always live in tents and never have the 
typical activities of, a, of an Israelite of tilling land or own, owning land or anything of that uh, nature. And so, um, you know, the Rechabites, the, these descendants of this man, uh, respond to uh, Jeremiah, we do not drink wine because our forefather gave us uh, this command. And so, um, and we have always obeyed, obeyed this command. And so Jeremiah, you know, is uh, struck by this. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. This is in verse uh, 12, Jeremiah 35 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of uh, Israel says, Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. But I have spoken to you, that is the Israelites, again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. And they said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your, and your fathers. But you have not paid attention, attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. You know, obedience and rebellion are at the heart of the human and the divine uh, drama. These are like the, the, the binary elements that uh, make up the relationship of man and God and much of human history and, and, and of the human journey and the, and the Christian journey are somehow parsed according to these two elements. We see, uh, you know, the very beginning of human history in the garden. God gives uh, humankind freedom to participate in all the experiences that this reality that God has created around them enables them to. Except he says, just one thing, don't eat of that particular fruit. And I've always felt that that, was, that do not eat of that particular fruit was just like a, a point of reference. That's all it was. It was just a marker to make sure that you know, there was something that would make necessary obedience. Because obedience is, true obedience is not possible without the alternative of disobedience. So that, that, it was just a sign. That's all it was, I believe, to define something. And, of course, we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and that unleashed, that broke the fabric, the perfect fabric of reality that God had created and unleashed all kinds of difficulties upon the cosmos and the human experience. And, you know, sometimes we're inclined to think, well, that's the beginning of disobedience right there. And sometimes I am, you know, just as I've started now with the, uh, the uh, story of Adam and Eve thinking, well, we've gone to the initial manifestation of disobedience. But no, you know, I'm always reminded that that was not the first one. Even before the dawn of history, the beginnings of mankind, you have another instance of cosmic disobedience where Lucifer, this exalted creature that God creates, rebels against God. And seeks to replace God. And we are given to understand by various passages in Scripture that uh, he unleashed also rebelliousness among the, the angels of God, giving way to the demonic elements that also contaminate human existence. 
And we see this being appear there at this initial narrative of human existence in, in the Garden of Eden, coming to Adam and Eve and saying, hey, you know, this, this being says that you shouldn't... But, I mean, did he really say that? And, and didn't he say that because he's afraid that if you eat of it, then you will achieve knowledge and acquire understanding that will rival his? And he's just being envious and spiteful and mean-spirited and therefore preventing you from having all the knowledge that you are entitled to have. And so he puts the seed of doubt and the fascination in the heart of Adam and Eve, and they are not able to resist it, and it leads to disobedience. So we see that, you know, it's almost like disobedience and obedience are archetypal. They're at the heart of the, the cosmic drama. They are this element that sort of rules and, and determines so much about human existence. And uh, that is at the heart of God, because his two preferred creations uh, have violated his law and have not taken seriously enough his prerogatives, his character, his holiness, that, that, that sacredness that we sang about so beautifully this morning. And, and so um, this is why God takes obedience and disobedience so seriously. His creatures have disappointed and disobeyed him. His heart is wounded and tired of uh, this pattern. You know, I believe we can discern in Scripture the drama of God. Because God is open to, to that dimension. Feelings, uh, powerful feelings of a jilted lover who has been betrayed by his wife Israel and then by his church and by his creatures. And you know, there, there isn't God, I believe, <clears throat> and this makes me love him more, really, instead of uh, kind of bringing him down to size. There isn't God this woundedness of the father who wants to be honored by his children and who is not honored by his children. There is in God what I would call even a masculine side, if you will, and I know that may be controversial, this masculinity that wants to be honored, respected, obeyed, paid attention to. The legislator in God who seeks to have his creatures be very mindful of his utter holiness and otherness and of the, the, the absolute worthiness of his words, his declarations, his principles, his precepts, his diagnosis of the human existence. And he wants us to remember that and honor that and abide in it and by it. And his whole sense of self is predicated on our doing that. And when we don't do that, he's so close to us and us so close to him that his heart is wounded. And I think there's a wound, a perpetual wound, that is perpetually bleeding in God's heart of the father who wants to be honored and obeyed specifically by his children, and they fail him over and over and over again. And so this is why obedience and disobedience are so important to the, the spiritual journey. And when I say obedience, it is, it is specific obedience. It's not generic obedience. I think uh, much of the problem of Christianity today is that we have sort of generalized God's uh, specificity. And we seek to kind of fudge things over by generalizing and compartmentalizing and not being um, severe enough in the way that we follow the Christian journey. Even though God's heart is very specific. And when he seeks um, obedience, he seeks it in a specific way. This is why the Bible speaks of precepts and principles and, and commandments. Um, because God is very specific in his ways. 
And so he's very specific in his utterances, utterances and his expectations of us as well. And he's a God who's a legislator. And he, his laws, his specific pronunciations need to be respected and obeyed. So when we obey or disobey in the Christian journey, we enter into this eternal drama. We enter into this tragedy in the, in the Greek sense of the word, in the literary sense of the word. It's something of great magnificence and seriousness and beauty and consequence. It's not a neutral thing. It's in the context of this uh, history of disobedience and God's bleeding heart. And so this is why I, I believe that you know, God is inordinately pleased, if you will, or displeased when we obey or disobey. Because it, it, it strikes to, to his personal journey. <clears throat> and so, uh, the, just as we react viscerally to something that uh, deals with our human, uh, with our past and our journey and our wounds, and sometimes we can react either very passionately, positively, or negatively because it strikes at be- feelings that we have raw inside of us. I think God also reacts that way. Um, when when we obey God, and when we are passionate for His holiness, and we are attentive to His needs. And his pronouncements, God is inordinately, passionately pleased by it. He's not just neutrally pleased. And uh, when we uh, disobey, he is uh, passionately, and I would say not inordinately in the sense of uh, inappropriately, but he is viscerally also displeased. And um, everywhere you see this, this idea of obedience, disobedience, submission, rebellion, when we receive Jesus, when we receive Christ, we are asked to receive him as Savior and as Lord. And I think Christianity has understood these two elements. And, and that's why we always put it in those terms. And it's very easy to forget, forget one or the other. And the, Christianity is always in tension between these two. But it's very easy to receive Christ as my Savior, my loving Christ. And I think much of uh, theology in the modern time sort of places that emphasis on, on the saving Christ, the benign, loving, tolerant, pa- pa- patient Christ. But we forget the other Christ, which is the Lord, kurios, meaning the, the, the owner, the master, the determiner of the specifics of the existence of those that are under his absolute command. Jesus is kurios, the Lord in the Greek word, the owner of the slaves, the master of his domain, the one who determines life and death and all the specifics of existence of those that are under his command. When we enter into relationship with Christ as Lord and as Savior, we are entering into that judicial dimension as well. We have given up a certain kind of freedom. And paradoxically, within that giving up of that freedom, we find our freedom. It's simply the freedom of a, a key in music where you can play countless pieces but always within that key and following certain laws. You, you don't have just, uh, you know, absolute freedom. It is freedom within a context, freedom within a limitation. But it's, it's immense uh, freedom. And so we, we receive Christ, we accept him that way. And by the way, many times we hear in our, in our own time, and we may not have time to... Ch- you know, discuss everything that we want to discuss, but at least, you know, stay with some basic ideas. I, I hear this um, tune nowadays in modern times that, well, you know, it's just Jesus. And, um, you know, that we should just follow Jesus and forget about all the 
commandments and all the limitations and, and all the specifics and uh, all the, the, the legislative aspects of Christianity. And uh, it's just Jesus. And Jesus, you know, and, and this falsification of the person of Jesus. And we forget that the, Jesus is, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is his words. Jesus is his commandments. Jesus is his holy personality. Jesus is his prerogatives. Jesus is the words that describe him. Jesus is the incarnation that we see in Scripture. How otherwise do we know Jesus? We can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't have access to Jesus through Scripture, and then once we have him, we throw him, throw him away or throw Scripture away that got us there in the first place. So we need to, uh, Jesus is his commandments, his words, the specifics of his person. And we cannot do a kind of a, a slate of hand uh, operation and receive him and have him through the stairs that Scripture provides and then kind of forget about it later on and say, okay, now I have him. I don't need this. No, it, it, they're, in, they're inextricably, inseparably involved. So Jesus is his commandments. Jesus is his principles. Jesus is his, his uh, holy personality. And Jesus, by the way, is also the, the, the letters of Paul and the letters of uh, Peter and, and uh, James and... Uh, Acts, there's this other slate of hand of trying to give names to the different books and say, oh, Paul didn't know this. He wasn't aware of this, and therefore it doesn't apply to our time. When we say Paul, we are immediately sometimes doing a little bit of a, an operation there, trying to make Scripture relative, to compartmentalize it, to break it down into personalities, forgetting that it is one Holy Spirit inspiring every word. The words of the book of Matthew or John, of Jesus, are no more sacred and no more prescriptive than the words of James. It is the Holy Spirit speaking through the words and giving us access to the realities behind them and in them. So we can never separate. The, the, the scripture is one beautiful garment. You cannot break it. You cannot cut a little piece of it. It is indivisible. It is all or nothing. And so this is the thing, this is, the, this, the, this is what we enter into when we enter into this journey of obedience. So these Rechabites, <clears throat> you know, they exemplify all of that. It's an archetypal narrative of uh, this element of obedience. God's heart is offended because his people have disobeyed him. This is all that you see in the book of Jeremiah from beginning to about chapter 30, 35. It's just one big Jeremiah of God's lamenting the rebelliousness and disregard of his people for his holiness. And then he says, you know, he's venting. And he says, he says to Jeremiah, go check these people out. Call them to the, and let's see what they do. Just order them to drink and see what happens. And these men, they remain resolutely bound to the promise of their forefathers. It wasn't even their father. It was their forefathers. And this holy man of God tells them, drink. <clears throat> and they say, uh, we cannot do it, even if it's you who commands it, even if it's really enticing, even if we have been given this command. And by the way, it's interesting that, you know, the, this command that this man gives his descendants, is, it's, kind of a, it's kind of whimsical in a way. I mean, uh, all the Israelites could drink legitimately. The Bible doesn't prohibit the drinking of wine. I don't think so. Um, and neither does it prohibit, on the contrary, it does encourage, you know, owning land and uh, living, you know, the land and tilling it fruitfully. But these men have been prohibited by their father from doing so. 
and their absolute uh, submission to the will and the honor of their father and their forefather compels them not to participate of that wine. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, the whimsical nature, the, the sort of the, the, um, op, the optional nature of that obedience is made, uh, it makes much more dramatic their obedience. Because it didn't deal with something really utterly moral. It dealt with the heart of that father. It dealt with the honor of that father. It dealt with the will of that father and the submission of their children. And I, I suspect that their children found in that honoring their father's uh, command a certain particularity and a certain beauty and a certain identity that united them and bonded them and probably gave them huge strength. And so, um, you know, God says to, uh, when they do this, God says, hey, look at them. They're, they're, the, the, these, these men are honoring a human father and probably, you know, some, and, and a human command. And my people, whom I have so blessed, whom I have engendered from their obscure beginnings and blessed them so utterly, they don't obey me. You know, and I believe that that's, that's the heart of God even today speaking. And if we truly love God, you know, we, we must be so passionate to heal his heart. And when we obey, we are healing God's heart. That sounds absolutely scandalous. For God to be affected by us in such a, an intimate sort of way, but I think it is. And we must be aware of that drama of our Creator and always seek to soothe His heart and quiet some of His agony by being so attentive to His honor, to His prerogatives, to His holiness. And um, so He says, you know, they, they don't honor me. And, and you see this cry of God all over the place. I mean, to me, it's one of the most dramatic literary aspects of, you know, the, the, the Old Testament narrative in particular. And, you know, as, as a kind of a, a, a postlude, a postscript to this drama, you know, uh, God um, goes back to the Rechabites, and, and he sends a message to them through um, Jeremiah. And he says, um, in verse 18, Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jonadab, and have followed all his instructions and uh, have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty... Notice the, you know, God's own sense of uh, worth and uh, his uh, estimation of his own importance. God God doesn't suffer from an inferiority complex. God is very sure of who he is. And that is precisely what makes him so, res- uh, so resentful of that violation of his... Uh, this, is what the, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man to serve me. I mean, God is uh, assigning the ultimate honor in a way. Eternal existence of that name. It will never fail. I wonder... How many descendants of Rechab there are in Europe or in Israel or here in America right now, not knowing perhaps that they are descendants of that word? They must be everywhere. It must be a very large family. It has been with us throughout all eternity, throughout, rather, throughout all history from that moment on. And that name will live throughout all eternity. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful reward that God gives to this family. God's rewards are not like the ones that we seek. 
And so uh, he assures them, that, you know, constant uh, presence in Israel. So that, that's, the, that's the essence of, you know, this, this passage. It's about the fact that the descendants of this man obeyed him faithfully, but the Israelites wouldn't obey God. And God is impressed and delighted by the, reward, by the, by the obedience of these men and rewards them greatly. And as I've said before, obedience is so important because it honors God, you know, just as we honor our parents. That's why at the heart of one of the basic commandments is honor your father and your mother. And it says that in honoring that authority, in honoring authority, not necessarily being blind in your service to authority, but always your default posture. I think the default posture of a believer, of a Christian, is to honor authority and to question it when it absolutely needs to. I think today we have the opposite. We have the default posture being question authority. And if everything else fails, then honor it. I think the Christian ethos, the Christian sensibility is to, it delights in honoring and it seeks reasons to honor authority. And is wounded when it cannot honor authority. Um, because again, at the heart of this dimension, it says, you know, so that it will go well with you. Honor your father and your mother so that it will go well with you and you shall have a long life. At the very center of prosperity and happiness is this, uh, this uh, respect for authority, this obedience, this delight, this realizing that we are honored and we find honor in submission to legitimate authority. We do not have discretion to choose what we obey God in. If he has said it, we must obey it. And again, I want to suggest to us, you know, how important it is that, you know, the, the, only, the only access I have to God's psyche is through his word. It's, it is his psyche somehow mysteriously, you know, poured into these this vessels, these imperfect vessels of words, time, space, culture, temperament, human specificity. That's what the, the word, and yet mysteriously, there's a, there's a microcosm of God's uh, infinity in this word. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie um, Interstellar, first read a little bit on, on cosmology and physics and then go see it. it it's a fascinating movie. And, uh, you know, it, it, just as an, as an aside, the, the more we know about the nature of reality, the less we know, it's number one. And number two, the more we realize how mysterious it is, and how things that, that seem limited and physical and utterly hard are truly just microcosms of, of, of energy, utterly dynamic, totally you know, impervious to words and to human reason. Because God created it, and God is able somehow to include infinity in finitude, into the limited and we're always uh, dealing with infinity through this medium that is so small, that is the human physical reality. And that this is, the, this is the, the, the feat that God has performed with this word as well. It is, a cos it is a microcosm. It is infinitely full of truth. And, and, and somehow it always morphs and changes and adds and it vi vibrates before our very eyes. It is alive. This is what the word says about itself. It is alive. And it acts upon us. And so we have to take it very seriously. We have to be students of this word. We have to ask God for understanding of this word. We have to ask him to make our mind, our understanding, our spirit 
pliable and encompassing enough to be able to enter into a relationship, appropriate relationship with it. We must value the Word of God. I think so much of the problem today that we have in the Christian church in America, and all over the world really, but in America, I think it's the, the drama is more alive than anywhere else I believe right now. Um, uh, much of the, the mistakes that we make, the infantile kind of theological reasoning that we see exercised in America, in the church, is because there's this lack of familiarity with the Word. And I urge you, young men and women of God, to enter into a passionate relationship with the Word of God, become students of the Word, prize the Word, realize the mystery of this Word, realize its utter beauty, and uh, enter into it with awe and fear and trembling, and seek to be skilled handlers, in the best sense of the Word, of that, of that Word. And by handler, I mean not that you manipulate it, but you can navigate it. Maybe the word navigators of the Word and uh, learn its, its specifics, its principles, its structure, its themes, its characters, its sequences, its chronology. Learn it specifically, and then let it just explode inside of you and, and fill every crevice of your being, every cell of your body, every synapse of your brain, and let it just pulsate through you every day of your life. And you will be then powerful men and women of God. The world will speak through you, in you. Uh, but it's important because it is, it is the source. It is God's being poured into this dimension. Only God can do something like that. But he's done it. And so study it because it's what gives you access to the preferences of God and, and his precepts and so on. By the way, I think I'm almost ready to, to end. So I, I will do that. You know, maybe if someday you invite me again, I'll do the, I'll do the other part of the sermon. I, that's not an invitation to invite me, but simply just to say there's a lot, there's a lot more to, you know, to speak about this. But if I can leave you with one, one thought, one impulse in your mind is that, you know, uh, be utterly aware of God's pain and, and the privileged position that we occupy in being able to affect this being that is absolutely self-sufficient and yet has made himself fragile enough to be affected by what we do, his people, his creation. And, and always live your life in the light of that God who loves you passionately, who delights when you obey him, who is hurt when you disobey him, and then become students of his character. You know, this one passage just, just came to my mind and it says, you know, it's, it goes something like this. I, I have it in Spanish. But it says, you know, let not the man who is fast in running delight in his, or, or, or in his uh, speed or the strong man delight in his strength or the courageous man in his courage. But if he has to delight himself in something, in, in something in himself, if he has to kind of take pleasure of anything about himself, let it be this, in that he is able to... In, in conocerme y entenderme, says, in, in knowing and understanding me, that he knows me and he understands me. If he's going to delight in anything and take pride in anything, let it be that, that he knows me and that he understands me. And those two words are not the same as you can imagine. To know God, we can know him. We can know the, the, the specifics and the, all the theoretical things about God. And we can know a lot about God's qualities. Even an atheist can know a lot about God. 
but to understand him, to understand uh, the way you know a wife or a husband, a father, to understand what he prefers, what he likes, what brings pleasure to his heart, what displeases him, to, to understand the, the nuances of his personality, that's another thing. And you can only know that by cohabiting with him intimately through his word. And then you can please him and you will know exactly how to touch his heart and you will be successful, you will be blessed, you'll have authority, you'll have power, he will protect you, he will cover you. If you mess up, he will be there passionately to forgive you and to let you know that he has forgiven you. Because that's the other thing, let me I just leave you with that, with hope. I'm not here to hit you over the head and to leave you kind of, you know, just uh, all wounded and, and guilty. No, the beautiful thing about this journey of uh, obeying God is that... Um, when we fail, he, he's, when, and he knows our heart, and he knows our desire to serve him and to obey him and to please him, he is resolutely determined never to break his bond with us. He will have compassion on us. And actually, he will be as sad as you are of offending him because you have offended him because you're hurt. And he will be quick to heal you as you confess and ask for forgiveness. There's no condemnation to those that love the Lord and serve him. So we should not fear entering into this journey of obedience because we'll fail many, many times. We'll come up against structures in our being that will lead us to failure in, in being totally obedient to God. But that's, the safety valve that he has provided in Christ is amazing. The forgiveness, the, the love, the, the unquenchable passion and his commitment to us is absolutely unthinkable. And so we can have hope, we can have joy, we can serve, we can enter into that journey. And I invite you to do that right now. So, Father, may I pray a moment? Father, we, we ask you to take your words and to give them life within us. We ask you to take the things that we have not been able to say and to somehow make them visible and present in the heart of these young men and women, this institution, its leaders, its parents who are here, here this morning, Father, myself. Give life to your words. Make them real. Let them speak to us even after we leave today. And we commit ourselves with the help of your Holy Spirit to love you, honor you, serve you, obey you, submit to you, seek to know you and understand you. And we pray for forgiveness, Lord, even now for the many times that we wound you and disregard your holiness and uh, take liberties that we simply should not. Thank you for being so generous with us. Leave us with your peace this morning, Father. Leave us with your joy and with the delight of this extraordinary journey that we undertake when we become your followers and your servants. I bless this congregation and I bless this institution. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. We thank Dr. Miranda. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful weekend. Go in peace.